Isaiah 38 and 39. So um, it, in this book, Isaiah is a long book. Um, we're, we're past the halfway point, which is great. Um, but what we're doing is we're taking, a, last week we looked at the first couple chapters of this section in Hezekiah's life. So the, the book kind of changes direction a little bit, or at least tone a little bit um, in the four chapters that we've been looking at last week and then today, um, where it shifts away from just Isaiah preaching a message to the people to looking more at the historical things that happened in King Hezekiah's life. So there's a kind of a four chapter subsection in this book, um, kind of a, a little a bit of an aside from the message, just to sort of work through what did God do in King Hezekiah's life. And so last week, we saw how King Hezekiah, um, even though he made a lot of blunders, in the early days of trying to manage this Assyrian crisis that he was living through, uh, where the Assyrian Empire was coming after Israel and were coming to conquer them. Um, Hezekiah made a lot of mistakes in that. He sought the help of the Egyptians over the help of the Lord at one point. Um, he tried to buy off the um, the, the Assyrians and try to bribe them to leave. Um, he didn't demonstrate a lot of trust initially in the Lord, uh, but he did eventually get there. And chapter 37 records that and how uh, he prays to the Lord for help and the Lord does help and drives the Assyrians away and actually does um, quite a lot to, to take them and weaken them so that they were not in a position to attack Judah anymore. So we see that, and then today we're going to finish up this uh, story in Hezekiah's life. Um, but as we conclude Hezekiah, um, we're, we're going to see that his reign and rule was overall, generally speaking, a good reign. Uh, the Bible tells us in 2 Kings 18, verse 3, that Hezekiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that David, his father, had done. So when you read the Kings or the Chronicles, those, those books of the Bible record the history of Israel's kings. And there's usually a summary statement about each king, whether they did what was right or did what was wrong. And Hezekiah did what was right in his eyes. Now that does not mean he did all things perfectly, as we've seen. He made a lot of blunders. He made a lot of mistakes. He showed uh, a lot of lack of faith in, at different times. Um, but overall, he was one of the good kings, which is interesting because as we read the, the rest of these chapters, 38 and 39, um, you're not going to get the impression that he was a good king. Uh, he, didn't, he didn't do a lot of the right things, but he did some good things. And overall, the Lord judged him as a good king. Um, he did good things like tearing down the altars of false gods that his father Ahaz had built. So Ahaz was his father. He was a terrible king, possibly one of the worst. Actually, I think the worst was, the, was Hezekiah's son, Manasseh, who came after him. Um, but that's another story for another day. But Hezekiah did the right things in tearing down the false gods' altars, restoring worship to the God of Judah. Those are great and commendable things. However... King Hezekiah, like, like all of us, is a man of contradictions. He has contradictions in his life. He has moments in his life where faith shines through, but he has moments in his life where doubt reigns as well. He sees victories in his life and he sees defeat. 
He, he seems to be moving in the right direction at times, and then he takes a wrong turn. And we're going to see that as his life comes to a close, um, just how things go for him. And I, I'll just tell you from the gate, out of the gate here, it's not, it's not a great ending to a story here. Um, it's not one that we would want to emulate ourselves. But here we are. Um, we got to look at it. And we got to remember that this, though, he's, though these chapters are not particularly positive about King Hezekiah, um, overall, God was pleased with him because God had grace for him. And, and so even though he was a man that had a lot of contradictions in his life, we have to realize and be humble enough to admit that so do we. We have contradictions in our lives too. None of us walk with Jesus as purely and righteously as we, as we should. And so we need to extend some grace to Hezekiah as well in this and, and recognize that we shouldn't pile on, but we need to wrestle with what we see. So let's look at it. Um, we'll read through, uh, starting in verse 1. Here's what it says. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die. You shall not recover. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, Please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. Go and say to Hezekiah, thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria and, and will defend this city. This shall be the sign to you from the Lord that the Lord will do this thing that he has promised. Behold, I will make the shadow cast by the declining sun on the dial of Ahaz turn back 10 steps. So the sun turned back on the dial, the 10 steps by which it had declined. All right, so on the surface, this is a pretty straightforward story. Right? Uh, Hezekiah is sick. He's got some kind of a disease. We don't know what was inflicting him, but it was a, it was a death sentence. And he's on his deathbed. Hezekiah is visited by Isaiah. Isaiah comes to him and says, listen, you're going to die. Um, we're all going to die at some point, right? I mean, this is, not, this is a conversation every one of us will have someday. It's terrible to, to think about, but it's true. Um, and he says, you better get your house in order. Make sure that your wife has the you know, policy information for your life insurance. Make sure you got your will figured out, right? Um, that, that's the conversation that they're having. Hezekiah gets that news and does obviously not like it, right? None of us, us want to hear this. So what does he do? He prays. He turns his face to the wall and he prays and he begs God to keep him alive. He weeps bitterly um, and, and amazingly, God decides, all right, I'll spare you. And he actually tells him how many years he's going to give him. I'm going to give you 15 years to live. 15 more years. Now, that's a, that's a privilege that none of us really have, right? We don't know how many years we have to live. Um, we, none of us are born with the expiration date stamped on us, right? We don't know. And that's a, that's a blessing in a lot of ways. 
But Hezekiah was told, okay, I'm going to heal you from this and you're going to get 15 more years. And so he does this thing. He, he, we don't know exactly uh, what the disease was, but God heals him of the disease. He shows him a sign to prove to him that he has the power to do this. And he does this kind of interesting thing where he makes the sun go backwards uh, for a, a, a short time. And again, don't, don't really understand how that all works, but God created light so he can do what he wants with it. And, and so that's, that's what's going on. But what I want to point out here um, is that th- this, this passage, we, we can read and go, okay, here we go. I'm sick. I need to pray. And God's going to heal me because he did it for Hezekiah. I don't want you to get that impression. God does not guarantee this to everyone. In fact, this was an unusual situation. And it was one that's meant to point us to the ultimate hope we have in Christ who will give us life eternally. That's really what it's meant to do. Uh, It was an earthly sign and symbol of an eternal hope that we all have in Christ. However, um, I want to point out a few things about Hezekiah and his prayer. When When we read his prayer, and we don't obviously have the whole prayer. We have a summary of it. Um, it. It's not a great prayer, if you think about it. Look at what he says. He says, Please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness with a whole heart and, have done, and has done what is good in your sight. So what's, what is Hezekiah's pitch to God to get him to heal him? I've been so good, God. You owe me this. Look at how I've walked with you faithfully. Which, just on the surface, we, we, we read Hezekiah's life and we know that that's not true. <laughs> it's not true. Not entirely. Now, again, he did far better than Ahaz did and far better than many other kings did, but that's not the metric that we're, that we're measuring him by. He did not walk with God with a whole heart. He just didn't. So he's a little bit like delusional about himself right now. And, and he's essentially saying um, that he, he, he needs to bargain with God. And basically what, is, what he's showing is, God, you owe me this because I've been so faithful to you. That is a terrible pitch for us to try to receive God's help. That's not a humble prayer. That's a prideful prayer. It's, it's, bragging about himself and saying, see God, see, you, you owe me this. So what we, here's the thing, if we, rece- if we were God, and we're not, thankfully, if we received that prayer from somebody, we would probably go, you, are, you have got to be kidding me. Like, I would have helped you if you just owned up to the fact that you, you stink at this. But no, you didn't do that, so now you're, you're done. Like, that's how we would all treat him, but that's not what God does. God decides to heal Hezekiah, not, I want to get this clear, it's not because of the, the power of his prayer, but it's because of the faithfulness of God that God healed Hezekiah. Look at how God responds to this. He says, Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father. So what, when God de- describes himself as the God of David, Hezekiah's father, now David was not Hezekiah's father, he was his ancestor, you know, number of generations back. But he, he's in the line of David. And what God is saying is, listen, Hezekiah, I'm faithful to my promise to David. So I'm going to be faithful to you. I'm, he's, he's doing this out of his own 
goodness and grace. And look at what he says. I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. I've heard you. I'm, I'm faithful to David. I'm faithful to you because you're in David's line. And, and so therefore, I'm going to add 15 years to your life. God is not saying, you know what? You're right, Hezekiah. You deserve this because you've been so good. He's saying, no, I'm going to help you because I'm so faithful and I'm going to be faithful to who I am. He says, I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria and I will defend this city. So God is saying, it's about my faithfulness. It's about me helping you. It's not about Hezekiah and how good he is. I want to point that out because God's grace comes to us despite the fact that we are not what we ought to be. And God graciously shows us kindness even when we don't deserve it. Even when we think we are better than we really are. And so here you have Hezekiah. Now he prays a pretty self-centered prayer. Not a great moment, but, but an understandable one, right? He's just been told that he's going to die. So of course he's going to try to do something about this. It's totally natural and understandable. But then as we get into this, um, verse 9 through the rest of this chapter records the writing of Hezekiah. Hezekiah basically writes out a memoir of this after he's been healed. And, and he talks about what, what was going on. So let's, let's get into his mind and insight. A writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, after he had been sick and recovered from his sickness. Verse 10, I said in the middle of my days, I must depart. I am consigned to the gates of Sheol for the rest of my years. I said, I shall not see the Lord, the Lord in the land of the living. I shall look on man no more among the inhabitants of the world. My dwelling is plucked up and removed from me like a shepherd's tent, like a weaver. I've rolled up my life. He cuts me off from the loom. From day to night, you bring me to an end. I calmed myself until morning like a lion. He breaks all my bones. From day to night, he brings me to an end. Like a swallow or a crane, I chirp. I moan like a dove. My eyes are weary with looking upward. Oh Lord, I'm oppressed. Be my pledge of safety. What shall I say? For he has spoken to me and he himself has done it. I walk slowly all my years because of the bitterness of my soul. So here we see again this, he's just describing his anguish, right? He's describing his sorrow over this, this illness. He's describing what, his, what was going on in his mind and his heart. And it was, it was painful. It was, it was bitter. And, and then uh, verse 16 through 20, he's going to recount his feelings, emotions, and, and what's going on in his heart as he receives his healing. It says, O oh Lord, by these things men live, and in all of these is the life of my spirit. O oh, restore me to health and make me live. Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness, but in love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction. You have cast all my sins behind your back. For Sheol does not thank you. Death does not praise you. Those who go down to the pit do not hope for your faithfulness. The living, the living, he thanks you as I do this day. The father makes known to his children your faithfulness. The Lord will save me. We will play music on stringed instruments all the days of our lives at the house 
of the Lord. So here, this is, a, this is great, right? This is really good, God-centered, solid, uh, a solid thing, right? He's re- recounting how God saved him and he gives God all the credit. This is wonderful. There's nothing in this to really critique. There's nothing in this to look at and go, ah, he's, he's missing it. Like, he does get it. He gets it, right? Again, he's, he's kind of going back and forth between being a buffoon and being really wise. And he just kind of goes back and forth. Then in verse 21, it, we see that he once again kind of acts a fool. It says, Now Isaiah had said, Let them take a cake of figs and apply it to the boil that he may recover. So that's kind of, let's talk about that for just a second. Um, God presents this healing through kind of a weird way. He makes them put a cake on his, on his boil or sores or whatever, and he's healed. Why would God heal him like that? There's nothing magical in a fig cake or anything like that. So what's happening here? Well, it's, it's just demonstrating that God comes to us in our need and he actually meets us in in a really tangible, physical way. Like God is a God who loves us. He's not distant from us. He's near to us. And and we see this all the time in the life of Jesus, right? When Jesus had the power to heal people just by saying a word, just by saying, hey, you're healed. He could have healed everybody that way. He could have, you know, he stopped the storm by just speaking to it. Um, but, But most of the time when you read the healing ministry of Jesus, what is he doing? He's putting his hands on eyes, his hands on ears. He's, he's tangibly meeting people in their brokenness and need. And I think that just, that just shows the, the nearness and love of God who comes close to us. I think that's what's happening here. Like, there's no other reason why God would have had to, there's no reason why he would have to use this cake of figs and apply it to the boil. Like, that's weird and it's unnecessary. But I think he does it so that he can show Hezekiah that God is not just distant, he's also close to us. Okay, so now he's healed. In verse 22, here we go. This, is, this last sentence in th- verse 38 is, uh, chapter 38 is, is kind of um, strange. It says, Hezekiah also had said, what is the sign that I shall go up to the house of the Lord? Now on its surface, that might not mean much to you, but this, this is what's happening. He's basically saying, Okay, he's been healed. All these things have happened. God has already shown him a sign with the sundial thing. And now he's at a point, he's been healed and now he's like, okay, now God, you got to prove to me that I should go worship you. Like, what? This is weird. This is really strange. And, and it actually is in contrast to what uh, King Ahaz uh, was offered back, in, if you remember back, way back in chapter 7 of Isaiah, King Ahaz was told to ask for a sign and Ahaz said, no, I don't want it because he didn't have any interest in what God would have to say to him. Now you have Hezekiah, his son, who's been given sign after sign and proof after proof and now he's sitting here going, okay, what's next, God? Give me more. If, if you want me to go up and worship you, you got to give me more. It's it's just sort of this dizzying thing with like our, our equilibrium's off when we read this, right? It's like, what? on one hand, he's like super great. On another hand, he's like way off and just kind of goes back and forth. He's, he's got this weird, contradictory kind of life. But this is what I want us to hear. Um, we all do. This is how we all are on one level or another. None of us are as consistent as we should be. 
And none of us are as faithful as we should be. And so that's what we're seeing. Now, as we get into chapter 39, we're going to get a glimpse into what Hezekiah does with the last 15 years of his life. He's been given 15 more years to live. How does he, how does he use them? All right. This, one's, this chapter is pretty short, so we'll, we'll get through it pretty quickly. <clears throat> At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah. For he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. All right, so now if you are familiar, and it's okay if you're not, but if you're familiar with Old Testament history, you, you know that there's basically two bad nations that are always causing problems for Israel. Assyria and Babylon. Those are the two big ones. Okay. Assyria has already been dealt with, and so now enters in Babylon. And here you have this guy, Merodach Baladin, the son of the king of Babylon, sent uh, an envoy, so a bunch of guys, to go and visit Hezekiah with letters and a present. So now this, this should give you a little bit of a red flag because ba- Babylon is not, they're not friendly with Israel. So why are they showing up? They're just showing up for, well, it'll become clear why they show up as we read this. But here, here they show up. And here's what happens. Hezekiah welcomed them gladly. And he showed them his treasure house. The silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, the whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all of his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. So you don't have to be a great strategist to know that this was a really bad decision. This is really dumb, right? He brings these guys in who are there to basically butter him up, but why are they there? They're there to spy out the land so that they could make a plan to, to conquer them, right? These are not friends of Israel. These are their foes. And it's just shocking that when, when this envoy shows up at Hezekiah's front door, he could have just said, hey, thanks for your kind wishes. Thanks for the present. Have a nice day. We'll see you later. But that's not what he does. He says, in fact, come on in and let me show you everything. I'll show you it all. He takes these guys through a tour and he shows them all of his money. They sh- he shows them all of the, the things that uh, he thinks are impressive. He shows them his entire uh, you, you know, all, the, all of his armory, so all the weapons and all, everything. They know everything about their weaknesses, about their strengths. He shows them everything that was in his house. There was nothing. The, the, the emphasis here is on there was nothing he didn't show them, right? He showed them everything. He just gives up everything to them. This is a really reckless and foolish thing. And the reason Hezekiah does this is because he's proud, and he wants to be impressive. And he sees these guys from Babylon and he goes, oh, I can, I can impress these guys. And you can just imagine them going through the halls, going, ooh, ah, wow, amazing, Hezekiah. You're, you're so wealthy. You're so... These guys saw, like if you just know anything about the history of Babylon, they had more than Israel on every count. Like they're not impressed at all, but they're pretending to be impressed to butter him up. So this, is, this is a total trick. And you could, we can see it from hindsight, but Hezekiah didn't see it or didn't want to see it. 
but again, he should have seen this. Like he, they've just been through all this with, with Assyria. You would think that his, he would at least have some sense of, well, I got to hold things close to the vest here a little bit. Now, he just shows them all, everything. Now, look at verse 3. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah. This, doesn't, this is not going to go well, okay? Um, Isaiah shows up and said to him, What did these men say, and from where did they come to you? Hezekiah said, They have come to me from a far country. So first he's like, I don't really want to say it, but I'm going to say it. From Babylon. And Isaiah said, verse 4, What have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answered, they have seen all that's in my house. There's nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. So this is Isaiah's chance to kind of, you know, shame the king in some ways. Like, what are you doing? Like, does he, you know, sometimes you wonder, especially in our political season, and like the things that politicians say that are like, Really? You just said that? Do you not have anybody around you telling you not to say that? Like, we, we wonder those things because you're like, uh, obviously don't say that. This is what Hezekiah is doing. He, he has nobody around him saying, don't let the Babylonians see everything. So he does. And maybe he did, and they're just not in the story. I don't know. But, but he didn't listen to them if, they, if there was anyone who told him this. So what happens? Isaiah, verse 5, said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up to this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So he's given this terrible news. All right, Hezekiah, here's what's happened, man. You just opened the floodgates for these guys and, they're, and God's going to tell you right now, they're coming. They're going to come. They're going to come and take everything. They're going to take everything you have. And they're not just going to take all the things you have. They're going to take your kids and they're going to take your grandkids and they're going to force those those people from your own house to become slaves in the house of, of the king of Babylon, to become eunuchs. We don't need to talk about what eunuchs are, right? Because we got kids in the room. So, but you, this is not a good thing. This is not a positive thing. This is a terrible thing. It, on, on some level, this is probably, this should be worse news for Hezekiah than the news at the beginning of chapter 38, which was you're going to die. Now he's being told, you are going, you're going to have your entire kingdom destroyed. Everything's going to be lost. Your, everything that your fathers have built will be ruined. You would think that that would drive him to the Lord, just like his own sickness drove him to the Lord. But look what happens in verse 8. The, then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good now, in, in the Hebrew, I'm not an expert in Hebrew, but I, but I read this at least, that in the, in the sentence structure, the emphasis is, in the sentence is on the word good. 
Like that's the, that's the main point that Isaiah, uh, Hezekiah is trying to say here. He's saying, basically, we could, we could probably translate it like, um, the word that the Lord has spoken is really, really good news. Or you could say, good is the word that the Lord has spoken, right? That's where the emphasis is. And so why in the world is he, like, is he insane? Like, what, what's happened? Why is he getting this news that everything that he's built, everything his fathers have built, his, his entire future going forward is going to be destroyed because of Babylon? Why in the world is he saying that that's good? Look at the last sentence. For he thought, this is what was going through his head when he said those words, there will be peace and security in my days. What? What? Like, okay, so this is, this is what he's saying. Great. Babylon can come in and destroy everything because I'm not going to have to live through it. I'm not going to have to deal with the fallout. He's the reason the fallout's coming because he stupidly opened up the doors to Babylon but he has no remorse. He has no sorrow. He doesn't even pray that this would change. He prayed that he'd be healed, but he doesn't pray that his kids wouldn't become eunuchs in the house of Babylon. He has no interest. All he cares about is that it's not going to happen to him. This is short-sighted and foolish. This is extremely sad. And we, we all know this, right? I mean, when, when we look at the the people who are in charge and the reckless and foolish things they do and how that, that's going to play out to future generations, we look at that and we go, what are they doing? Can they not really see how this is going to turn out? And, and, and it seems like most of the time people in power don't really care about what's going to happen after they're dead. And Hezekiah doesn't. He's just like, you know what? I got my extra 15 years. So why do I need to care what happens to my kids or grandkids? This is the last thing we hear about Hezekiah in, in, in the book of Isaiah. The chapter 40 onward just changes direction and really begins to prepare the people of Israel for what will happen to them because Babylon does come and Babylon does take them away. He, they kill most of Israel and most of Judah and then they, they do take many of the people into into slavery. The book of Daniel is a story about that, that Daniel is in Babylon after that invasion happens and he is, is forced to serve in the house of the king. And so we see that this does come about. God's promise comes true, but Hezekiah has no concern at all, not interested and it's like, it's just so, it's so like dizzying when we read this because when it was Hezekiah's personal life that was at risk, what did he do? He begged God for help. But now that he's found out it doesn't, this isn't going to affect me, he doesn't even utter a prayer that we, that we have recorded for us in scripture. And so here, here it is. He's healed. The story is he's given 15 more years of his life but what does he do with them? He squanders those years. He wastes them. He brings about lasting destruction for the people that he's supposed to care for. And, and it doesn't take long for all of this to go really badly because his son, after he dies, Manasseh, his son, becomes the, the king. And Manasseh was the 
worst king probably in Israel's history. Um, Manasseh sacrificed some of his own children to a false god in human sacrifices. Manasseh was a bad king, and that, that does say something about Hezekiah's legacy, doesn't it? When his own kids go so far off the path. But let's talk about this, um, because we need to understand how this story helps us today. Right? Hezekiah lived thousands of years ago, and on its surface, like this is just telling us what happened. But does this story help us today? I, of course it does, because it's God's word. Here's, here's what we, we see. We see in Hezekiah, a man who was healed by God in chapter 38. And then just absolutely stunned by all the wrong things he does in chapter 39. And when we read these two chapters and we go, how in the world does this make sense? This doesn't make any sense. But, but guys, this is who we are. We don't make sense. We need constant, continual renewal from the Lord. We need to consistently walk with the Lord and, and have him renew our souls. That's what we need. And just like Hezekiah needed it too. But Hezekiah, his pride got in the way. and He didn't see his need. But here's the good news for us. God does have a way for us. Psalm 23, verse 3, that David writes of, of the Lord being our shepherd. And he says, that the Lord restores my soul. How does God restore fickle, hypocritical, inconsistent people? How does he restore us? Well, let's, let's look at it. The Bible has a lot to say. The first thing we need to do is we have to look at Jesus. Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith. In Hebrews chapter 12, 1 to 2, it says, therefore, since we, have, or since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and every sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. So what are we called to as Christians? We're called to run the race with endurance, with faithfulness. We're called to throw off the sins that are clinging to us. We're called to lay aside those weights. We're called to run to Jesus. So how do we do that? The Bible doesn't just tell us to do it. It tells us how we're to do it. In verse uh, 2, it says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Here's what we need to remember. Jesus is greater than Hezekiah in every possible way. Hezekiah was a man who was fickle, who was foolish, who looked at death and was freaking out about it. Jesus is greater than him in every way because he doesn't look out at death. He didn't look out at his own death on the cross and freak out. He embraced it. He received it. And he went to the cross gladly with joy, it says in Hebrews chapter 12. It was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. He embraced death to free us from the penalty of death. Jesus' legacy is not fickle wandering like Hezekiah's or like mine. It was faithful obedience 
and obedience ultimately to the cross. So we, we don't need to look to Hezekiah for our hope, right? Because he's, if we're putting our hope in somebody like Hezekiah, we're going to be really, really disenfranchised. If we put our hope in any human leader that we, we think can solve all our problems, we're going to be disappointed in the end. But if we look to Jesus, we are capable of then running with endurance the race that's set before us. We cannot run this race with endurance if we don't look to Jesus, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith. Notice those, those words. He's founded your faith, which means he's the one who establishes it, gives it to you, but he also perfects your faith. He, you and I don't have perfect faith right now, but Jesus is at work in perfecting our faith. Jesus did this and does this for us. Jesus is the one that we need to look to. So, so let me just give you two things to consider and we'll conclude. First, if you're here today and you are a believer in Jesus, you need to remember and I need to remember that your sanctification, your, your process of becoming to be like Jesus is incomplete. You're not there yet and neither am I. And every single day, you and I need the Lord afresh. We need him. We need to look at him every day. We need to pursue him every day. Because the world is distracting us. Satan is condemning us. Temptations are whispering to us. Familiar sins don't go away easily. So is it any wonder that we sometimes buckle and fall. We have so many things coming at us from so many different directions. So here's the thing. We need to remember, even if you're a believer in this room, you need to remember how weak you still are. Because it's only through understanding how weak we still are that we will have the, the motivation to look to Jesus who is strong for us. We need to be realistic. We are more sinful than we know and more sinful than we would ever want to admit. We are, I think, actually spring-loaded to fall away from God. That's just our default setting. So that's the first thing we need to hear. We, it's, the, it's not great news. It's not comfortable news, but we need to hear it. We, we need to see ourselves as weak and needy people. But secondly, and this is the most important thing, we need to be realistic about who Jesus is as well. Yes, we need to be realistic about ourselves and our need, but we need to be realistic about who Jesus is. And here's the truth. Christ loves empty, ungrateful, fickle, confused, hypocritical sinners. He loves them. He, and thank God he does because that means he can love me. He, can, he restores our souls. So yes, we are all those things, but Jesus loves us even when we are all those things. In Luke 15, verse five, Jesus tells a parable about a shepherd who goes after a sheep that was lost. He had a hundred sheep. One disappears, wanders off. He's got 99 other sheep that you would think, well, I can lose one. I'll, I'll stay with the 99 and let that one figure itself out. No, that's not what Jesus says the good shepherd does. He goes and he pursues that one. He leaves the 99 in the open field 
to pursue the one that was lost. And he, when he finds it, he carries it back on his shoulders to where that sheep belongs. And Jesus is telling us that he does that for us. When we wander, he comes and pursues us. He finds us. He carries us back to where we belong. So if you're here today, and I'm assuming some of you are here in this place today, if you have Satan discouraging you, if you have sins that are holding you back, if your shame tells you to hide, if your conscience tells you you've gone too far, God says to you, return, for I am merciful. He says to you, I will come and I will find you and I will bring you back in my mercy. The God that we've offended is telling us to return to him because he's merciful. And, and here's the thing, God's word overrules every objection that we have. We need to remember that. We need to remember that it was at the cross of Christ that the love of God was pouring out as an ocean over us, giving us mercy for our sins, helping stupid sinners like me. It's, it's a, it was the costly display of love that God shows us at the cross that restores our soul. When our, weak is, when our faith is weak, his love is strong. That's the gospel. That's what we need to believe. That's what we need to embrace. You're here today and you need to hear that because I need to hear that too. We all have discouragements. We all have sins, but we have a God who is greater than all of that, who welcomes us to himself and calls us to return to him. And we get to do that. We have, the, we have the amazing privilege to do that. So no matter what you're going through, no matter what season you're in, no matter how hard your life is, we can look to Jesus who died on the cross to display the love of God for us in all the brokenness that we experience. Yeah, Hezekiah, he fumbled the ball for sure. But we do too but our stories are not yet over and we have a gracious God who is merciful. And here, but here's the thing you need to remember. Even though Hezekiah's life ended this way, so badly, so pathetically, so self-centeredly, how did God judge his kingship? He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. The only way God could say that and be true is if there was something that God was doing behind the scenes. And God is doing that work in us because we don't stand before God with our own righteousness. We stand before him in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So we can, we can say with confidence, it's not my righteousness that gets me to heaven or gets me to God. It's Christ's righteousness in me. That's my hope and, and glory. So with that said, we're going to take some time to um, remember the Lord and his death and his mercy to us in this uh, as we partake of communion. And today's the day, we try to do this once, once a month. I know we miss some, some of these weeks, but we tr- we're gonna do this all together today and just as a church, remember his death for us. And so I'm gonna pray to lead us into that. Um, as I pray, the band can come up and the, um, and the servers can come up and just stand in the, by the front row here. And then we will, um, 
we'll go from there. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy to us today. We thank you that though we are foolish at times, fickle at times, that we have fumbled the ball many times in our lives. You, in your grace, have not abandoned us. You haven't left us. You pursue us and you call us home. Would you help us now in this moment as we remember your death for us, for our sins? Would you give us a, a grace afresh today as we partake of these elements? And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.